Daimler is not worried about BMW's competition. They are worried about the computer manufacturers, the Apples, etc., coming, the Googles coming into the world of, of car manufacturing. If you look at Uber, Uber was born as a taxi service, but Uber moved into food delivery. Uber moved from food delivery now into tourism by offering tours through vineyards, you know, which is a smart idea if you drink to uh, taste wine that you actually have uh, someone driving you. <laughs> and you know, but, but they don't care about the, uh, industry boundaries. They go wherever they can grow. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit aperturehub.co. Statistics say that 73% of all companies need to pivot. Our guest today says that better planning can actually prevent the need for all of this. According to Mark Gruber, Vice President for Innovation at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, EPFL, you can't win if you don't know where to play. Instead of a just-do-it mentality and pivot later if it doesn't work, Mark speaks with our host, Ben Robinson, about how true entrepreneurs and innovators are reflective and flexible in how they think about what they're doing, and they also know what market to play in. By the end of this episode, you are also going to understand what's a good market to be in, and you will learn about the attractiveness matrix and the social identity theory of the three kinds of entrepreneurs. Mark holds the Chair of Entrepreneurship and Technology Commercialization at EPFL, and he is a world-leading researcher in this area. And he is also Deputy Editor for the number one empirical research journal in management, the Academy of Management Journal. So a very talented fellow. We are very happy to have him on this podcast. Now onto our conversation with Ben and Mark. We are at EPFL and we are with Mark Gruber. I think where we wanted to start with you, Mark, was to talk a bit about Switzerland. So anybody who listens to this podcast probably knows that Switzerland tops lots and lots of innovation uh, league tables. And so as a nation, it's really good at coming up with innovation. But it doesn't really have any sort of leading or sort of you know, top of the food chain tech companies. Do you think that Switzerland is good enough at commercializing its tech? First, let me say I'm very pleased to be here. Thank, Thank you, you for, for inviting me to the show. It's a true pleasure to, to discuss with you all the topics around innovation, entrepreneurship, some exciting stuff I think we can, we can discuss. And it starts with your first question. I think it's a very pertinent question. You know, if you look at the tables, we are extremely good in, in, in generating invention. You, know, you see this in all the patent tables, per capita, etc. We're extremely good on these fronts. Where we still have a lot of room for improvement is the commercialization side. So if you look at the definitions, innovation is invention plus commercialization. Moving then from the invention phase to the innovation phase where you have a commercialized product or service, this requires very different skills. This requires skills about understanding customers, understanding markets, figuring out good markets, about testing your products, about understanding whether the customer likes the features of the product. This is very different in terms of the activities. You know? uh, it's uh, than, than the invent inventive phase. Yeah. You might be inspired as an inventor by some real-world problem, you know, and that's often the case, but it's still something different to test it with human beings, to uh, understand what the response of a human being means, and not only one, but, but multiple or hundreds or thousands if you want to do serious market testing. So everything that has to do with invention and then everything that has to do with the innovation step, the commercialization step, um, requires distinct capabilities, activities that are engaged with this, and... Uh, 
from that perspective, you know, it's it's quite normal to expect that, you know, there are in the leak tables, we can be good in one dimension, like in the inventive uh, dimension with patents, and we might not be good uh, so good as the other one. Are you almost saying that Switzerland should be top of the leak table for invention, but somewhere way lower down the list for commercialization then? Yeah, we, we should, you know, ideally we should be high on both. The invention is, is, is fantastic, you know, that's, that's a great outcome, that's intellectual effort. But the financial returns, the ecological returns, the sustainability returns, if we talk maybe later on in the show about the broadening of our concept of returns, you know, if you look at all these returns uh, in society, those come up, you know, only in the next step. It's a commercialization step where you create the impact, you know, where you scale it up, you know. And if we are not good in the second step, the impact remains uh, more limited. And, and why is there that? discrepancy between invention and commercialization is it is it because of the size of the domestic market or is it more about the sort of skill sets that it's, it's, it starts with the skill sets yeah it starts with the skill sets and then it's 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 something that i see in my practical life it was when i work with the startups when i work with large companies but I, that's also part of the research i do it's it's it clearly shows the skills and the um inclinations to do these things also differ between people. You know, you have some people who like to do technology, others like to do commercialization, and few people actually like to do both or are able to do both. You know, there are, if you look out there, there are few great leaders of companies that can do both. You know, think about Steve Jobs. He was good in on the tech front and he was a fantastic marketing person, maybe even a more marketing person than a tech person. You know? I think it's the skills, it's the attitudes, and, and they produce... You know, we are extremely good on the inventive front, and I think we can be better on the commercialization front. And do you think that those skills will appear, you know, just by themselves as companies have more success? These initial skills to invent, they are, I think we are, we are solid with this, with the technical universities yep. in Switzerland, etc. And I think the, the amount of money we spend in educating our population over the last 30, 40 years was extremely smart because they are, you know, we have really, really, really good technology uh, technologists. What we are have been starting about 20 years ago is, is, is to get into programs that support entrepreneurship, innovation, the second step. Uh, and educate people on this front. And we see it here at, at EPFL very concretely where we have you know, now a, a, a multitude of programs where students don't only learn about the concepts but apply the concepts you know, so that they understand what it means to bring technology to market. And I think that's, that's where we are investing now. What we try to teach there, which is not the easy part, is to this mentality issue, you know, going out there, being more extrovert, talking to people, being able to convince other people to buy a product. You know, these are very interesting skills and important skills to have, but it's, it's something that might not be so close to the culture uh, uh, that we see here in, in Germany, in Austria, and neighboring countries. You know, the, I think the United States, the Americans are much better in, in, on these fronts. So you could argue that they're better just because innately they're better, but, it's, but clearly one of the differences is that there's been so many successful companies. And you know, success begets success. If you've commercialized one product and you know how to do it, then the likelihood is you, you know, you, you stand a much better chance of doing it again versus somebody who's coming at it fresh. So that isn't that the bit that's missing most that's, in the Swiss ecosystem. Yeah, we have um, these reference models that are now popping up. You know, we have quite some, some successful unicorns now in Switzerland. We have a few very good successes, but on the, you know, this is, why we bring the students also into other ecosystems where they see the, the more advanced companies. And what they realize is, is, I think, two things. First, they are inspired. 
But second, they see that water boils at 100 degrees there too. You know, and they come back and say, hey, if, if these guys over there can do it, you know, and if over there means, for instance, Silicon Valley. And we send students over there for, for, for trips, for, for, for stays, for four for to eight weeks. We have a desk at, at Swissnex where they could go. Um, if when they, once they come back, they say, hey, actually, we have all the ingredients here in Switzerland as well to be successful. And let's take uh, the smallness of our market even as an advantage because we can say, okay, we are born in a small country that makes us uh, much more open, you know, if we want to conquer markets uh, towards other European markets by birth. You know, either we we, we are yeah. open-minded and, and start uh, internationalizing early or we are staying small in the canton of War or Zurich and that's, <laughs> that's a very, uh, let's put it this way, that, that's not a really uh, strong impact you could have, you know. It's almost, yeah, like that maxim, which is you should be global from day one. It's almost like here you have no choice. Right? You don't have any choice. And yeah. if you, what we also see then from the research side is quite interesting. What There's always this, this imprinting of, of the nationalities that you have on the management team uh, that, that uh, foreshadows the internationalization strategy. You know, so if you have three nationalities on the team, the likelihood that this team will internationalize earlier is, is much greater than if you have one uh, country nationality represented on the on the founder team only. And that's that's quite promising as well because we are a country that is quite diverse. Uh, the startups that are created here at EPFL are quite diverse in terms of the uh, background of its founders, and that makes it more likely that they internationalize. And, and I think that that's not only good for the country, that's that's extremely important for the company. Perfect. So I wanted to talk a bit about um, your book, Where to Play. So it's, it's a book and it's a website, right? So, mm-hmm. so, um, so, if you, so you don't have to buy the book necessarily to get access to some of the methodology Absolutely. and no, frameworks. It's, it's and, actually yeah. the, the, all the tools are available for free. And if you want yep. to learn more, you can even get a free online course. And if you want to buy the book, of course, <laughs> you buy the book. It's, it's a lovely <laughs> book. You spend a lot of time working on it. And I think it, it gives you a lot, uh, additional value, you know, but you, the core of the method is out there for free. It is, um, it is a lovely book. It's a book um, that I first came across thanks to Steve Blank, right, who wrote yeah. a very um, nice uh, review in it. And the way he positions it, and I guess this is the way you position it as well, is it's it's like a very nice complement to some of the other tools, you know, so um, the business model canvas and so on. And but the the key difference being that it sort of it comes before if you're like a precursor to doing the the latest stuff because yeah. until you've figured out which are your most attractive markets to to operate in, then you know it's, it's premature to think about product market fit. So, um, so can you just explain to us a bit the the concept then that it's uh, yeah. the the importance of where to play and how people have maybe underestimated that, underestimated that until now. Yeah, so it's it's very correct what you say. It's Steve Blank uh, wrote an extremely nice blog post about uh, the book and the method that is behind it. So we'll share the link to that um, to, for the listeners. Excellent. And uh, what what he said is basically the look the the tools that were in the lean startup uh, up to that point were uh, mostly focused on getting being successful in one. Once you know your domain, you know, figuring product market fit, developing a business model for within that market. But these tools didn't really help you to figure out where to start. You know, which, which what is a good market to be in in the first place? And there he said that's why he's adopting the tool actually for his lean tool set, which is a wonderful badge of honor for us because it's it's yeah. like it's one of the most important, if not the most important, innovation tool that, that was developed in the last 20 years, two decades, and to be adopted by the person at the at the origin of this is, is, is just a fantastic uh, recognition. So uh, we, Sharon, myself, Sharon, my co-author, uh, 
of the book and, and co-creator of the method. Uh, of course, we were had big smiles when we <laughs> got that badge yeah. <laughs> of honor from Steve. And, but, but more generally, the book is about um, trying to, and the method that is underlying is, is trying to figure out what are good markets to be in. Because you could be in a very lousy domain and do all the stuff. You can develop a business model. Yeah. You can do market testing, but then realize only after a while that actually, hey, that domain was not so great and I need to pivot to another one. I still have to find the first adventure team or corporate innovation group that likes to pivot. So if you can somehow be a bit more foresightful, you know, I don't want to say that you can predict the future. That's not at all my thesis. But if you can be somehow a bit more foresightful and say, hey, there's a better market here than there. Uh, let's let's first go into this turf before we try the other one. I think then you, you know, that's actually what the research shows. You are significantly more successful. And so I was going to ask you that. So, so it's almost like, you know, we're, 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 we're sort of given to believe that, that pivoting is almost just, you know, a natural part of the course. And but what you're saying is that, that actually it doesn't necessarily need to be because if you, if you spend a bit more time understanding your, you know, your market opportunities, then, then the likelihood of pivoting is, is becoming more remote. Yeah. Yeah. And do, do you have evidence to prove that, you know, that those really unpleasant, you know, you know, 180 degree pivots happen less frequently. So what we've seen clearly is we, I've done 15 years of research before I wrote the book, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we, I, I, as a researcher, I said, I, I'm going to write something where I, I know that there's the, the, all the empirical results point to some, some, a method that makes you more successful. And um, what it does is, is a, I think, twofold, you know, and, and let me describe it maybe with an example. If you have a, um, Flyability as a company that is here yeah. at PFL, uh, they are producing drones, okay? And they have a drones in a cage. And with this type of company, the question really is, well, where do you apply this? You know, and they, they, they had the idea to, to say, okay, we go to uh, uh, nuclear disaster sites, you know, uh, atomic reactors, and, and the drone can go in there and get a good idea of, of, um, of the debris and of the, of the casualties that might be there, as bad as it is. And But there are many other domains where they could... Uh, inspection, you know, with with uh, electric landlines, with pipelines, indoors, outdoors. So it's really about figuring out a good starting position. And if you think about it, yes, this company once it sees more opportunities, there are some that are better markets that are growing quicker, where there's less competition, where the customer demand is stronger, where the development costs are smaller uh, than other domains. You know, and the first element what they learn is well, we can actually start with a better more fertile ground. The second element, and that's equally important, is that, yes, we, we but we still don't 100% know if this works out. When Once you have this wider lens, you become more um, sensitive to many decisions in your company and don't uh, dig yourself into a ditch so quickly by saying, hey, I uh, call my company now uh, yeah. drones for nuclear disaster <laughs> site inspection.com. Yeah. yeah? yeah. They called uh, themselves flyability, and that gives you a lot of flexibility in case you have to pivot. Yeah, so you have a double, uh, 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 I think, a, a double benefit out of applying the methods. Number one, figuring out where get a better market is, and number two, actually figuring out that you can be a bit more agile because you make decisions that put agility into the DNA of your business. So even if you have to pivot, it's much less painful. Than if you are just moving into one direction and 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 see that that as your your one and only goal, and then I've realized after half a year that this doesn't work out. And by the way, the statistics say that seventy three percent of all companies need to pivot. 
before they, you know, that was the statistic before they actually applied the method. <laughs> and and do you know what it is now? So post hoc? No, we, have, we okay. haven't done that yet. But we, but we see that companies are created very differently. You know, yeah. people have an opportunity set. That's a portfolio of growth options. They go out there, pitch these uh, this portfolio of growth options to the venture capitalists, business engineers, etc. By saying, that's our first market. If this one works out, that's our future growth market. If this first one doesn't work out, this is our plan B. Yeah. And this is a, a super interesting uh, storyline for any VC because the venture capitalists knows that they know the market. Number two, they are de-risking the project by saying there's a plan B in case the first one doesn't work out. And they have a future growth option in store, uh, which means more value creation. No? Or they might even have two, three more growth options in store. So in that sense, uh, uh, what, all the feedback we're getting from the financial communities is they are super excited. They wish that every company would apply that that uh, actually comes to their turf, you know, and, and uh, seeks for funding. So um, uh, I just want to for just test slightly the premise mm -hmm. on which the book is, is built and the methodology is built, which is, so the premise is that every, every product doesn't have just a single potential application, that there are many sort of potential customer groups and markets for any given product. And I was just reading this thing from Bain and they, and, and they, they basically take the same premise that you do. And they say, what becomes important is not to, to sort of identify exactly where to play, but instead to focus on how to win. Because if you assume that, you know, things, you know, the uh, commercial world isn't sort of tightly grouped into industries anymore, but arenas, which mm -hmm. I think is, um, this is terminology that you use as well, right? Then what's most important is having a sort of competitive edge and having an execution edge to be able to sort of win across large arenas now. How do you see that sitting alongside? This? I think that this perfectly matches. You know, I think there's a question is how to win. Well, yeah. But you want to win in a good market. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's why the question where to play is, is always a, a sibling of the how to win question. If you are lousy in the where to play question, you are, will be inferior in the how to win question. Because if you're winning a, a super small battle in a small market, yes, great, you have won, but you have missed out the big other alternative. You know, And that's where, where I think they nearly need to go hand in hand. And what you're saying is, is, is quite important. Let me emphasizes this question that we just discussed for the startups is, is of equal importance for the large companies. We are living yeah. in an age where uh, the industry boundaries are imagined boundaries. We have the most successful companies actually moving to across industry boundaries. Rita McGrath calls this in arenas, you know, competing yeah. in arenas. And this is super important for, for large companies too. You know, think about Daimler, Daimler is not worried about BMW's competition. They are worried about the computer manufacturers, the Apples, etc., coming, the Googles coming into the world of, of car manufacturing. If you look at Uber, Uber was born as a taxi service, but Uber moved into food delivery. Uber moved from food delivery now into tourism by offering tours through vineyards, you know, which is a smart idea if you drink to uh, taste wine that you actually have uh, someone driving you. <laughs> and you know, but, but they don't care about the, uh, industry boundaries. They go wherever they can grow. And this is, look at Google, what they are doing, you know, it's, it's look at all the different businesses. They go wherever they can grow with their competences. So what you said earlier with, with, with products, you need to look one step below and say, hey, we have competences that generate these products. And if you maybe add from a large company's perspective, AI, drones, etc., to the mix of competence that I have, maybe I can do even something else. Maybe I can offer new service. Think about maybe one of the most traditional business construction businesses. 
If they add drones to their mix of competences, they can offer everything from, from, from construction site inspection towards inspection of, of, of the, the full furnished site later on, etc. Because they have all the knowledge about the, the construction process, they will at the, sec in the second step have an advantage to say, hey, we are actually able, better able than other companies to monitor the sites and to, to monitor the uh, degradation of the site over time. You know, so the, the logic that, I, that is out there is one where you very much now look for growth turf based on your competences. And there, the initial question is actually where to play. And once you figure it out, it's how to win. And then it's about the, figuring out a good business model. It's about figuring out a good product customer fit, etc. Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm. He always talks about, you know, leaving the relative safety of your first market to then get into the mainstream mm -hmm. and how that's almost like a trial and error type process. Mm -hmm. And are you saying that if you employ the where to play from the very beginning, you know, crossing the chasm is that much easier because you've sort of already identified the stepping stones. So I think you actually use the term of building blocks, right? And yeah. building so yeah. you're saying that you'd almost build the tower that gets you to cross the chasm. Exactly. And if you look at, at Jeffrey Moore, it's like he has this uh, analogy with the... With, uh, with the pins that are falling, you know, it's like you are, you are, yeah, you're, yeah, you're focused on one, yeah. and then it's like yeah. other. But but it's in a way, it's the same same logic here. It's a, or a similar logic where you say, okay, we need to figure out the first one to hit, you know, and the, which is the most fertile ground that we can foresee somehow, and then when we enter there and are successful and go through the you know com uh, uh, diffusion curve, you know, we start of course with the people who are highly engaged in this market. They might be opinion leaders. They talk about our product so that we get into this most fertile ground, grow our tree there, to use another meta, uh, analogy, become strong there, and then we can say, okay, now we branch out into the other domains that are related. You know? But what, what Geoffrey Moore has not exp uh, explicated so well in his book, but, but what basically then in, in Where to Play is, is the logic where I say, hey, what could be this first pin? What is the other domains that we could get in? How can we structure a company or a project so that we actually have the capabilities that are more flexible so that you can more quickly and more efficiently enter these other domains. And this is in a, in a time where everything goes much quicker. These are very important considerations. You know, otherwise, yeah. So in that sense, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of Geoffrey Moore's book, and, and I think we are perfectly complementary with, with, with the thought world. Yeah, it's just you've, you know, it's exactly complementary because you've did the, you know, that horror, that diagram where it's just, you sort of jump off one side yeah. and hope to get to the other side. That's you've built the stepping stones to be exactly. able to, yeah. yeah. And then um, maybe, maybe we should, I think probably it's natural now to talk a lot uh, about the sort of attractiveness matrix that's mm -hmm. central to the book, right? So, um, so, this t so there, there are two axes. One is uh, challenges and one is potential, right? So the first question is, you know, could you talk us through that matrix? And then, and then maybe, you know, I suppose there's a follow-on, how you arrive at some sort of, you know, objective score for for those two um, yeah, matrices. So absolutely. Let me let me briefly give you the, the overview for, for the listeners that so the method has three parts. The first part is about understanding your opportunity set. You know, yep. being creative, understanding like in the flyability case, well we can apply our drone to everything from inspection of, of bridges up to inspection of, of uh, avalanche sites, etc. So you have a, an opportunity portfolio. When you look just at the description of a few of these examples that I've given with flyability, it somehow is almost obvious that not all markets are equally good entry points. Yeah, so you need to have in a second step an evaluation. And that's exactly where, where what you came uh, come in with the, with the matrix. This matrix has two dimensions. It's a challenge dimension. It's a potential dimension. Uh, and we, uh, Sharon, myself, we screened about 40 to 50 years of venture capital research to understand what type of features are 
of high importance to understand, uh, to make sure that you are able to evaluate early stage opportunities. Yeah. All under uncertainty. Yeah, but what are the features? And just look at you know a, a couple of these features. It's, for instance, market size. It's the customer strengths of the customer needs, the, the ability to pay. It's about the time that you need to develop the product, the time to, that you need to uh, make the sale. It's about external risk that you cannot control, etc. There are a couple of factors that are the main factors that we you can get out of looking at these 40 to 50 years of venture capital research. And that's, of course, not practical for the entrepreneur to go through thousands thousands of pages. So what we did is within that matrix, we have two dimensions, the potential and challenge, and behind it is a worksheet that helps you to score each opportunity and to learn up. And you know, sometimes you don't know how to score it maybe on the market size front. Uh, so you would have to do some backup research to understand, is this a small market? Uh, how many bridges are there in Switzerland, uh, in, in France, and in Germany, to understand what is the potential uh, market size. Um, so based on, on the worksheet that has a potential dimension as well and a challenge dimension to score, you come up with a summary score that you put then in the matrix. And uh, this matrix has four quadrants. You know, So if you add the potential and challenge, we, we have a quadrant that are the moonshots. This is high potential, high challenge. I like to joke, this is the Elon Musk quadrant. Yes. <laughs> everything, yeah. everything he likes yeah. to do is in the moonshot quadrant. You, know? you have... Uh, 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 low, poten uh, low potential, low challenge. These are the uh, uh, quick wins. You know, you have uh, basically uh, a, lo a lower left corner. You can say, hey, I can go in there. I can make an easy living. You know, I can make a first hit. This might be the first hit that then gives you a, a stepping stone option towards something else. I have the questionables with a high challenge, low potential, yeah? which I think will, well, you might wonder if this is a good idea to do. You know, if you feel suicidal, maybe you should do this, but <laughs> we don't recommend it. And then you have another quadrant, which is high potential, low in challenge, which are the gold mines. And those actually exist. You know, it's just that it's, it's, it's low uh, competitiveness, uh, high market growth, uh, strong customer demand, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, quick uh, sales cycles. Uh, and those actually exist. It's just, you know, you have to look at them and, and, and try to rate them. What we see with many entrepreneurs, before they apply this method, is that they say, okay, oh, yes, we have an idea about the market attractiveness yeah? and the challenges. But they typically only take one or two dimensions. They say, oh, it's a big market. This must be good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we can make a quick entry. That must be good. Yeah? And, and they are not so, they don't see the, the full picture of, of what determines shapes actually uh, a, a good market. Yeah, and I think also, you know, Doing it this way removes the subjectivity, right? Because exactly, yeah, yeah, because we tend to see things through our own prism. You know, it's, that's a challenge I've seen personally. And, Absolutely, yeah, you're yeah. completely right. You yeah. know, it's like oh, I re either you rely on your completely on a gut feeling, yeah, you know, or you are subjective in scoring. But this is we designed the tool so that it's a wonderful tool to work in teams with. You know, so you can say okay, uh, there's Ben, there's Mark, there's uh, Roger, there's, there's Henry, and we and and, and uh, Fabiola, and we sit together and we are scoring together, and let's see where where this ends up. And this is, you know, I think at the end of the day, it brings the team also together and says, hey, we did this together. We figured out this is the best point to enter. And I think that's a, in that sense, it's a, we didn't design it uh, or put, didn't put this to the forefront, I should say, but, but it's when we observe the teams that applied, it bonds the team, you know, because they are discussing these highly strategic questions together. I think implicit in what you said earlier on, but what you're recommending is a portfolio approach, right? Which yeah. is which is to say, you know, if there's a moonshot, maybe pick a quick win to, al to ally with the moonshot. Yeah, I think yeah. what you're describing yeah. is, is very important because it's, 
if you think about having a portfolio, it's, it's, it gives you additional abilities as a, as, a, as a founder or innovator in a large company. Why? Because you actually can say, hey, I start here, here, or here. And even if I want to do the moonshot, I ne I'm now more sensitive to the fact that I have to have ma much more resources, takes probably much more time than I yeah. expected, etc. You know, so you are a bit more careful. That's what we typically get as a feedback from the people who say, okay, we had a moonshot, we want to do this, we now need to raise, we thought we would need to raise 200,000 from the VC, <laughs> we actually need uh, 5 million. Uh, but we are not prescriptive at all by saying, hey, you need to do this or that. Let's, we leave up to the entrepreneur, you know, or the innovator. Should if you want to do a questionable, go ahead and make a, do a questionable. If you want to do a quick win that is small and that's your domain, just do this. You know, but be aware that you know these are the, the growth possibilities and they differ. And be aware that you know maybe if if the moonshot or the quick win or the gold mine should not work out, that there's a plan B so that you don't waste all your resources if you're more successful. Yes, you can start in the first one and then you move to another one. And then you, what it makes out of an entrepreneur is a, a bit more of an, a reflective person, yeah. which is countering this can-do attitude. We just do it attitude, and, and which, which bothers uh, by now many people that, that you know, within the business domain, there is this mantra of, oh, just do it and then you pivot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that in no, yeah. in no part of life we, we have this mantra, you know, uh, we tend to, as, as human beings, reflect a bit before we actually do it, you know, and I think ultimately what the book is about is a bit more, getting a bit more reflection to the whole process. Yeah, and I think um, that's one of the, you know, having worked with a lot of startups, I think that's one of the, the sort of friction points, right, you know, the founding team suddenly needs to raise money. And then the venture capitalist or whoever the external investor is starts to ask all these kinds of questions yeah. about. And it's obvious that these were not thought about, you know, um, in ex ante, right? And uh, and instead, you know, sort of retrospectively trying to add this lens of, uh, you know, this is where we'll go next. And yeah. um, and so I think it's, for, you know, I would think it's extremely helpful to have been through this process when you're trying to raise money, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like what we see is that, you know, from the venture capitalist side, they say, okay, if, if all the we see uh, if all the companies that apply for funding would be so explicit and so transparent of what they want to do, yeah, they, it would not only help us to judge the venture, but it would also signal to us that these people understand what they do. Yeah. And and um, you said also earlier on, but this idea that once you once you appreciate that you've got your first market. And you don't have to do these really harsh pivots because you know kind of where the next mm. landing point would be if it doesn't work out. And you you said that that determines things like what you call the company. But there were a whole list of things in the book about the sorts of things that you yeah. would want to be you know mindful of when you when you start, given that you are likely to have you know to to pursue multiple markets, given that you're operating in an arena. Not yeah. So we you can you know what we advocate is to, to as a small team as a small. As a, as a venture, you know, three, four people, you focus on one market. But if you are a large company with 50 people, you know, can you can uh, with 50 people working in, in innovation only, you can pursue multiple markets at one. Yeah. Yeah. But but you know, especially when you are, when you have a re very extremely resource constrained, what you need to do is to say, okay, I put need to put a lot of agility into my project so that you know every change that I need to make is is less cumbersome. Uh, not uh, consuming a lot of resources because your resources are, are are not endless, you know. And when you think about this, you know, if once you have this portfolio view of what you can potentially do, uh, and you know, let's go back to the flyability example. Once you understand that, you can actually go from construction side to 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 uh, uh, rescue missions in the Alps, etc. What you are 
Peking is a brand name that is different. You might, uh, that allows you to do many more things. Uh, number two, what you're trying probably to do is to say, I develop a product, the drone in a cage there, which is within a few steps amenable uh, to all these different markets. You know, or it doesn't you know, cost a lot to actually change the product so that it can be employed in all these different domains. Uh, third, you might want to hire people who have a bit more generalist expertise to understand, okay, if this one is a great domain, maybe these people can also work on this other domain later on. It's how you write your patents, the applications of your technology in there. Um, so it has a range of implications uh, that are very profound. And this is, you know, goes down to the nuts and bolts of, of the company you create, the project you pursue. And that's why why I think this mindfulness at the beginning is is then imprinted uh, into the DNA of, 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 of the company, of the project you're creating. And that, I think, is then over time, you know, you know, creating a company that is more agile, has the agility in the DNA, has an outlook on growth that is quite different. You know? And if you think about the earlier example that I mentioned with Uber, Uber has exactly that mindset. They say, okay, we grow in this taxi domain, but that, that's not all we do. You know, No one mandated Uber to just stay in this domain. You know, They could grow in all kinds of different domains. Now think about the banking sector, which is quite important for Switzerland. The banking sector, they have this idea of saying we have financial services. But if you move out of this, this logic and say, hey, actually there could be about trust services. Yeah. And once you're about trust services, well, huh, Finance is one leg that we could have, and maybe there are two, three other legs that can, we can develop wherever trust is needed among human beings. You know? And maybe blockchain is a key part of the skills we need to acquire and build in order to be a viable player in trust services. This would be the uber logic towards the financial industry. You know? I won't ask you about blockchain because that's um, we've, 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 we've made that mistake on previous podcasts. Okay, no, no. <laughs> it's, a bit of, it's a bit of a rabbit hole. They can look at the other podcasts, listen to the other podcasts. But, um, but on, on the idea of, so if you set up your company with the notion that it's a portfolio play from the beginning, yep. you're saying that you are, you know, almost in the, in, in the DNA is this idea that you, you will be agile. But so that I, I accept that as, a, as a, that that's true, mm -hmm. but it's still, there's still the temptation to always sort of, you know, double down on a market that's working, right? And so, what else would you recommend to to companies to, to to make sure they're agile and they and they and they, you know, they don't become in the Clayton Christensen sense, they don't sort of go so deep that they then become, you know, a risk of yeah. disruption for somebody else. Look, they they can go deep as long as they are realizing that these decisions are creating these deep ditches or paths. You know, we, we call this in the research path creation. You know, you yeah. create a path and that path gets more fortified, stronger with each and every decision that builds on this. You know, give me, let me give you an example. You make, you choose, you go, go for a market, you choose your suppliers, you choose the brand name for that market, you you uh, develop the, the distribution network for that domain, etc. So with each subsequent decision, you are more constrained and locking yourself in, uh, which is... When you, when you think about it, something extremely, of course, it, it focuses you a lot, but it's also something which with each step, it becomes m more expensive, less efficient, more yep. cumbersome to change. Yeah? And that's why we call the third step in our methods the agile focus. Because we say, you should focus, yes, but keep in mind to have, once you do these decisions, maybe you can make this decision, like with the brand name, in a bit more open-minded yep. manner. So that in case it doesn't work out, in an innovation, oftentimes it doesn't work out, you know, in case it doesn't work out, you are able to not fall into this, this big ditch uh, that you have been shuffling, you know, and, and don't uh, die from that. <laughs>
Um, the, the other thing you talk about in the in the book is zooming in and zooming out. So yeah. so uh, so we'd, we'd come across zooming in, zooming out in the context, the sort of the John Hegel context of like having multiple um, time horizons for strategic planning. Yeah. But you use it more as in like when you're identifying target markets, you want to look look at the highest level of like you know what's a massive sort of group that you could target versus the what's the sub segment of this industry that could potentially be yeah. um, addressable by the product. How, like, again, how, what's the repeatable methodology for, for doing I, that? I think this goes, it has very deep roots because this is what, what we, uh, in our research with Ian McMillan from the Wharton School, we have continuously been seeing as, as a core ingredient to an entrepreneurial mindset. The true entrepreneurs and innovators are able to flexibly think about what they are doing. You know, they're not like a hamster in a wheel yeah, and saying, yeah, yeah. okay, we have to run and run and run with the venture. They have this reflective capability. And let me give you a simple example. It's like um, if you have. Yeah, we, one of the inventors here at EPFL, one of the professors, developed a stent. You know, and this stent is basically for providing, uh, pre preventing your heart disease, etc. You know? And but this very same, he said, look, this is heart disease prevention, but we can apply this in the whole body. Then it's about blood flow technology. Yeah. And if you zoom out one step more, it's about flow technology. You well, know? and then it's you think about pipelines, etc. You know, so it's like you have from the very small narrow application within the heart towards everything blood flow technology to flow technology. And that's what a good entrepreneur should be able to do. Say, hey, I move out and I move in. You know, the best application might be the heart. I yes. don't yeah, yeah, yeah. want to challenge that. But it's like, hey, where else could we grow? What is our company about? This is a very profound definition. You know, And once you think about this as zooming in, zooming out, you can say, hey, that's actually doesn't cost me anything to have to reflect on this. This costs me a bit of time, but makes me understand better what type of animal company I create here. You know? So in that sense, you know, the zooming in and zooming out is a prerequisite towards seeing a portfolio of opportunities. You know? So it's like, so it's understanding th your value proposition as the, at its most granular level and then being able to zoom right from there to what's the, you know, what's the largest possible application. So like, as you said, with financial services, it's like understanding right from, you know, we do, you know, trade finance and, you know, invoice finance, whatever, right through to we're, we're about trust. Exactly. Yeah. Also, it's, but it's, 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 it's what I'm describing is it's only a cognitive process. It's, yeah. it's purely how you allow yourself to think about it, you know, and then it, it relates back towards uh, uh, the, the makeup of the, of the founding team or the management team where we have since 30 or 40 years, uh, a lot of super exciting research in the management domain where we see clearly that the, the makeup of the board, you know, the type of experiences they have, the education is is basically foreshadowing what the board will be able to do. You know, uh, so if you have four people who have studied finance in the board, of course, the likelihood that this company does more of finance, yeah, you know, and has that lens is 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 much higher than then than they go into another domain. If if you make the same analogy now and say, hey, we have four people in finance and three that have actually a blockchain experience, guess how this company will redefine where it plays. Yeah? So it's 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 a lot about the makeup of the founders or any management board of a company that basically somehow uh, is able to foreshadow what this company sees at in, in your growth path. And this goes back to this insight. It's, it's not from me. It's like I've, I've shown it empirically with my research, but from a conceptual perspective, this is uh, late 1950s Edith Penrose theory of the growth of the firm, a wonderful book. You know, I think one of the, the most uh, fascinating books that one can still read. Uh, and, and it's so current uh, as it's probably it's never been before. One application clearly of the where to play is when you're starting out. Mm -hmm. But you're saying it's also extremely useful for you know for strategy teams and executives in an in an established company to 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 provide 
answers about where to go next. Absolutely. That being the case, do you think it replaces some of the tools that strategists are using today? Like, for example, the, the BCG growth matrix. Uh, or the, uh, do you think some of these things have become a bit, you know, antiquated or obsolete given the, the you know, the way the world has changed, but both in terms of the nature of competitive advantage, i.e. that it's more about sort of demand side economies of scale and also, you know, the fact that we don't have these narrow boundaries of what's, what's, what's in an industry and what's not. I think that the rules of the games have changed. Yeah. The rules of the growth game have changed and with that, the, the applicability of the frameworks and the need for frameworks. You know? If we are, accept the idea that we are competing in an arena and no longer in an industry, uh, all the tools that would constrain you to think within an industry are not as meaningful anymore. You know, think about Porter's Five Force. It's a fa fabulous tool to understand yeah. industry. Uh, but it doesn't help you to understand the growth space beyond the industry, you know, this arena. And that's where where to play comes uh, in play because it actually gives yeah. you an idea of what else is this growth turf that might be available for you. Yeah? So it enlarges your perspective. Uh, and when you come, you just mentioned the large companies, they are in dire need of this type of perspective. And, and partly owing to the fact that most of the leaders running these companies were educated in the 89, 80s and 90s. They know, of course, from their MBA programs that Porter's Five Forces is the thing to do. Yeah. You know? But implicitly, this constrains you to the industry. Once you come with an arena perspective, you know, for the large companies, this, this, this opens up uh, very exciting new growth options. You know, And if you look at the interviews that the Daimler bosses, etc., are giving, the, growth, the large companies are waking up to that very quickly. You know, They have adopted not fully this mindset that there's an arena out there, but they are starting to realize that competition comes actually from places they would never have expected. You know? And that's where they learn uh, through the back door that actually there's an arena from you know, computer manufacturers suddenly compete with us. Oops. You know? We thought it would only be the car manufacturers. You know? So they learn through the back door that actually, well, there's an arena to play in. And secondly, what they are realizing is, well, they have the set of competences. What else can we do if we now put AI to the mix? If we yep. put drones to the mix, like this construction company that I was uh, citing, uh, referencing early on, it's like, yes, you have your constant, uh, your, your, your competence that have been around for 50 years, but now look, take drones into the mix. What else could you do? You know, you can become a service business that is quite successful. Huh? So it's, it's about understanding how, as an established company, you can employ latest technology increase the scope of your product offering, service offering, etc. And I think this is this should not be a threat to any company. This is a wonderful process because it relies on creativity, imagining new frontiers where you can grow. And this is, I, th I think, it applied in the right way, a, a truly exciting process that should, you know, energize everyone on the team. But I know that, that companies are worried, you know, because they say, oh, we've, you know, there's competition coming from left and right. The, the other thing that's, I think, good about it is it looks from a, from a capability point of view, right, which is, so, so a lot of the tools that strategies you use assume that the customer is kind of captive in a way because you want because you control distribution, yeah. you can just upsell and you know like the answers and matrix, right? You know, keep the customer, mm -hmm. the customer's fixed, and you can sell them more stuff. And and I think that that's been deeply challenged, right? As distribution has is opened up, and so again, it doesn't look at it through that distribution prism; it looks at it through capability prisms. Yeah. Right? So it's, yeah. Well, you can look at it through a distribution prism as well and say, hey, what other products could this customer need? Yep. And then you evaluate these types of markets or possibilities, options, you know, with the matrix too. The, the, uh, our, our framework is in that sense quite flex flexible. You know, what we... If, so in other words, it sort of fits around... What, so if you've, if you've got, um, uh, you know, a sort of matrix or 
uh, you know, a, a methodology you're comfortable with, this is tends to be always complementary, right? To take it down uh, a little. So what yeah. we we are in a way highly complementary to, to to even to the to the Porter frameworks, you know, yeah. to the to the Ansoff matrix, to the BCG matrix. I think because if you look at you mentioned the BCG BCG matrix early on, the, the underlying question is where do your new growth options come from? You know, and that's no, no there's no answer given the BCG matrix. You yeah. know, it's just like oh, the rising stars. Yeah, where were they born? Someone must have had the idea for this rising star. And that's where, where where to play comes in with its method because it helps you to understand there could be a growth opportunity, a rising star. How rising and, and is it really a star or is it a, a dog? You know, or, and, and, and helps you to understand in the first place what you're developing. Another piece of research you wrote, which was about the characteristics of founders. So you, you, you use the terms Darwinians, communitarians, and missionaries, right? Mm-hmm. Could you... Elaborate on what you mean by those terms. Uh, with pleasure. It, it's, it's actually one of the research studies that I, where I learned most about entrepreneurship from or innovation or life as such. This is a big term, but, but I'll explain in a minute why. Uh, we, we have done this study where we try to understand entrepreneurs within one sector, you know, to keep uh, heterogeneity low. Uh, it was uh, all terms of sports-related equipment. And there were entrepreneurs that actually were like the normal brands that you know, they're very competitive, etc. You know, and said, okay, we need to develop something that gives us a lot of return. And yeah. There were other entrepreneurs that were more uh, the tinkerers. They developed something for themselves, went on the slopes, for instance, others observed what they did and said, oh, can you do this uh, snowboard for me? Can you do this bike for me? Whatever it was. And then you have a third type where, we, where you realized, well, these guys are actually not caring so much about the market, the producers, because they want to sell something, but they want to make change the world to a better place. You know, they they are about ethical production, etc. And and we started off this project by interviewing these people and said, why why do these people actually have these different outlooks of what a company could be? Why would they, some of them, give their invention for free to others, while others would and protect it. You know? And that, that gave us quite a lot of, of hard thinking to do. You know? And uh, with my colleague, Emmanuel Fauchard, at some point, uh, we had discussions when I said, okay, I've done this study once about identity. And then identity was basically the key that opened up this puzzle for us because identity theory allows you to understand on a very deep level why people do things and, and what are their fundamental goals. And um, what we did then is to say, hey, there's there's a more generalizable framework within our data, uh, which by now has been applied by many other researchers. And is what we basically saw is that there are three types of entrepreneurs, yeah, pure types, and you can mix and match them at the end of the day. But the pure types would be the Darwinians. These are, you know, I, I fight for my business. I want to drive, you know, I'm the leader. If others in my market die, that's, that's good because I have a bit of market share. Huh? That's one very typical way of, of viewing business. Huh? Uh, the others were the communitarians where I say, oh, we are within a community, we openly share, we are trying to make the community a better place. And the third type was the missionaries where it's about the whole world. We want to make the world a better place. And from an identity perspective, and that's where it becomes interesting in two ways. From an identity perspective, this goes from the me to the known other to the unknown other. You know? And how you behave and act depends a lot if you do it for you if you do it for known people or you do it for unknown others. And what you expect as a return is quite different from, if you do it for you, you're, of course, you're, you're, at the end of the day, your bank, bank statement will be bigger. Huh? Uh, if you do it for the known others, maybe it's, it's love, it's admiration, but if you do it for the unknown others, 
you know, what's what it was it that you're getting out of there? Maybe you have a better conscience, you know, but maybe you are also like to be admired. Maybe you want to be invited to talk shows. You know, there's it's the motivators are very different. And if we are living now in a world where people are, are soul searching, you know, and trying to understand who they are, what they want to do, these types of questions are extremely pertinent. Uh, they are relating back, and that's what we found after doing all these interviews, they are relating back to some very exciting uh, parallels in, in, in philosophy. In political philosophy, you had these types of three types described uh, repeatedly. Yeah? So you, what we basically could show is that within entrepreneurship, we have types that have been for the last 2,000 or more years discussed by philosophers as, as the standard types of, of how we can think about human beings. In that sense, what I said earlier, it helped me to understand entrepreneurship, but beyond innovators, but also human beings, because these, these, is, these three types are the pure types, you know, that are prevalent, but then you have mixes, you know, it's like... Yeah, what do you call the hybrid, right? Yeah, yeah the hybrids, you know, yeah. if you think about companies nowadays that try to make profits, but also be sustainable, these are hybrids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and how their motivations might be in conflict, how they get all, uh, are aligned, uh, I think identity theory can tell us a lot about this. And would you argue that the hybrid model is becoming more prevalent, not because people's, you know, the makeup of founders is changing, but, but there's a there's more of a sort of constraint that's imposed by society for f to look at beyond just financial sense. Absolutely. There's, uh, I think that the times are over where you, uh, financial profit is uh, and, and job creation are the only two factors that matter. You know, they are long over. I think uh, the companies who haven't realized this are soon on the cemetery of companies. <laughs> but but if you, you know, it's, it's a much more pluralistic approach yeah. and it's, it's, comes from the side of the founders or the managers, but it also comes as a demand by, by customers, but also by future employees. Yeah, well, it's like if you are want to have the best employees out there, I see it with the students here at EPFL. Uh, if you are only profit-minded as a company, they will likely not choose you. You know, they want to have this second leg, the social consciousness, and the third leg, the sustainability consciousness embedded in what they do because they look for this meaning and they know that the world is breaking apart. You know, so they want to work uh, positively in an environment uh, that allows you to to follow these other goals. I wanted to ask you about the sort of, you know, the coexistence of where to play and some this other research, which is, it feels a bit like where to play was written for Darwinians, but can it be used by all? Yes, yeah, so, so where to play in its, its purest sense is, is, is written in the, in, in the business logic to say, hey, I, I want to create a company, I want to be successful, I want to, you know, and, and which is all fine. You know, I don't want to challenge that. That's still a, a model that creates a lot of wealth, that it creates a lot of good, a lot of tax returns, etc. Yeah? Um, what we have done now is an add-on, which is available on our website, where you say, okay, I download worksheets that help you understand if you want to create a, a social and sustainability venture, how to rate uh, these opportunities and how to understand also trade-offs between the profit side and the social side. You know? And I think this is this is extremely pertinent. So uh, uh, the tool is now enlarged with these types of thoughts. And I think this is, um, you know, from, from all the feedback we are getting from, from social and sustainability ventures, this is a very important add-on uh, because it allows these entrepreneurs to see more clearly how they could contribute and, and what it means actually to do have sustainable and, and social impact. Wonderful. I think the last thing I want to cover was, so in all the years I've worked in strategy, um, each year somebody somewhere, some commentator proclaims the death of strategy. And one, one of the things that's great about reading your book is it's, it's, it's a return to 
to fact-based research-led strategy, which enables you to do what is the very heart of strategy, which is to make good choices and understand mm-hmm. your constraints. And so, well, not to put words in your mouth, but I guess you would say that this this book and this approach is very much represents the triumph of strategy over, you know, the the the, the emerging sort of school of just pragmatism and pivoting and iteration and no, I, I think yeah i think it's it, it helps to to bring both perspective under one roof yeah? because it, it basically gives you a home for saying hey that's more the strategic thinking and that's more the 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 testing the reiteration that is needed to to validate what you have thought you know so it it brings together the the doers with the thinkers yeah and i think gives a, gives them a, a home and i think that's why why steve blank liked it so much as well because it says hey that's that's a part that was missing you know he probably gets a hundred of these frameworks to look at every year and has been doing <laughs> that for the last 20 years and this is the first time he ever opened again his toolbox in the last uh, 15 years or so to say hey that's that's a key new tool that needs to be in there um, but but i think you frame it nicely it's it's a strategy also evolves you know i think we are thinking very differently about uh, strategy nowadays than just maybe 15 years ago and strategy and innovation are two parts of the two sides of the same coin it's just how they work together the one is a world where you have to you know, explore where you have to investigate where you have to test and the other is a world where you have to be a bit more foresightful try to understand where you're strong at what are good marketers how this interacts i think is nicely described in, in the where to play framework because you have the the markets you choose this is more of a strategic outlook being having a portfolio and then on top of that you say hey in order to understand these different options of course i need to test i need to go up there i need to collect data but it gives you a framework to think about both You know, and I think that's where this this addition to the lean tools that makes sense because the lean tools uh, is one very much where you do experimentation testing, and now this gives you an, an additional aspect where you do the strategizing with. Perfect. So for those people that want to check out the the tool set, which as you said earlier is available for free. The URL is wetoplay.co, right? Exactly, and I invite everyone. We have videos on there. There are PowerPoint slides that you can download for free. There's there's basically a lot of opportunities to also listen to webinars and etc. Uh, for us, this is an, a tool that we want to see out there because we we've seen in the research that it works. We've seen with with uh, by now thousands of uh, startups and large companies that apply that it works. So there's no excuse now if you blindly enter a market and you have to do a you know a horrible dramatic pivot. <laughs> yes, it's, there's no excuse. And yeah, maybe after the first pivot then you come back and you realize well, maybe you should have read the book and and you read the book then it's still valuable, you know, you can yeah. start with as an established company reading the book and try to figure out the new growth curve or you can start as a startup and say hey Let's be a bit more mindful about what we're gonna do. Perfect, Mark. Thank you very much indeed for coming on the show. That was great. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure, and uh, good luck for everyone out there. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about our Aperture community, visit aperturehub.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.